Hi there. You're listening to the season two premiere of Tunes, a podcast about the songs we vibe to. My name is Diego Martinez, and I welcome you back to the one show that explores the history and legacy of music's most underrated anthems with the help of the people who made them possible. Songwriters, producers, arrangers, engineers, and the performers themselves. They say the waiting is the hardest part, and we know it's been quite a few months since our season one recap. So, to show our appreciation for you, our listeners, and to make up for the long wait, we're presenting a special two part episode featuring commentary from British singer Princess and engineer Phil Harding who will shine light on the making of the iconic 1985 single, Say I'm Your Number One. If the person I'm with really feels they would like to experience someone else, then all they should do is tell me. So say I'm your number one. When we're together, I must be number one. You must treat me as if this is special because it is. If you think about 85, there was so much R&B soul, mainly from America, you know, smashing the charts here. It was an experiment from my memory in terms of, we've got a great soul singer here who's a really powerful voice. Let's try something quite down tempo and soulful. Once upon a time, before the Matt Martins of today, there were three men who single-handedly ruled the pop scene with what was dubbed as the sound of a bright young England. Perky, colorful, and extremely danceable tunes, influenced by high energy, house, and Motown that moved an entire generation. Mike Stock, Matt Aiken, and Pete Waterman better known simply as Stock, Aiken, and Waterman, or Saw for short, formed one of the most successful production and songwriting teams in the history of popular music. Between 1984 and 1991, they scored over 100 top 40 hits in the UK alone and sold 40 million records. They are responsible for launching the careers of pop legends Rick Astley and Kylie Minogue and revitalizing those of people like Donna Summer, Bananarama, and Cliff Richard. Their assembly line approach to record producing and their ability to take virtual unknowns straight to the top of the singles charts was equally admired and vilified by the press. But one thing's for sure, the broad commercial appeal of their music wouldn't have happened without a cornerstone recording made by one session vocalist named Princess. The sultry Say I'm Your Number One was saw a stab at making a credible soul single, light years away from their early gay disco-infused productions for Hazel Dean, Dead or Alive, and Divine. Needless to say, they succeeded. And for Princess, it was the first of five singles with the team, all included in her self-titled debut LP. Mm-hmm. 
More than 35 years after its original release, the Princess album is being performed for the first time in its entirety through an intimate concert streamed all over the world, a project devised by her brother and manager, Donovan Heslop. This is his brainchild, as usual, and he secured my support by hook or by crook. And that's me just being droll. The main idea is that this, the album had never been performed live with me singing the songs to the fans. And I started looking at some content on YouTube in terms of what the fans were saying in response to different ones of the singles from the album. And I don't read about myself. I'm, I'm notorious for not doing so. And I just started doing it recently and noticed that, that I was receiving such a lot of love, some beautiful comments regarding Sammy Number, regarding the first album. And so Don said, it's time that you performed it for them. The people are still saying beautiful things. There are new fans who have said, I didn't know about her, but I'd love to know more. So it's pretty organic how it's come about. And Don is never slow in recognizing something that's beautiful that can be expanded upon. Princess is planning to go through all eight songs on the album, share stories about the tracks, and promises a truly interactive experience for her fans, very much in the style of the live-streamed concerts that have become a norm in the entertainment industry since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. I feel that that's what we've, in fact, graduated to, the fact that we're all in this intimate experience together. And it's time that we respected that, you know, really gave that its full attention and love the fact that we can still link up via the sound waves, via the frequencies that we share, that we feel most enjoyable to us. That's still our right and our legacy. And so however we can present that, it must be done until we can do it in the most optimum ways, which I think are also when we can gather person to person in a really beautiful environment and listen and experience and dance to that music. Being able to represent that in a more intimate setting is an interesting dynamic and task, but one that I feel up to. So it's going to be a challenge on so many interesting levels, but a beautiful one, a beautiful challenge to represent that music 35 years later. She says as she hobbles around. <laughs> Recorded during the fruitful and somewhat brief period of collaboration with Stock Aiken and Waterman, the Princess album holds a special place in the hearts of those she's touched with her music and in the heart of the lady herself. Princess remembers being encouraged by the production trio to try out original material, like the LP's closing song, Just a Tease, and an overall familiar atmosphere in the studio that was reflected throughout the entire album, including the song that brought her to fame. have a certain bias for just a tease because it's the one we wrote and 
we insisted that it came out a certain way and they decided yes they did like our vision for it and presented it as faithfully as they could and we presented it as faithfully as we could So it was the first song we ever wrote um, together, Just at Ease. So I have a certain bias towards it, although I love every song because we co-wrote that album, some of, some of those songs, we co-wrote. This album was extremely organic. It grew from a relationship and a relativity and a, a trust and a musical respect that we were all indulging in. Don was, on, was, in fact, they would test the danceability sometimes of the rhythm track based on whether Don started moving or not. Sometimes that would happen. It was a very, very almost familial atmosphere. I think that's also what's captured in Samuel Number One. You know, when we did the BVs, it was a talk about say it, say it, say it. You know. There were different aspects that were just organically being experienced at the time. And then they'd say, yeah, that's great. Let's do that. So it was truly a collaborative effort for all their expertise and the wonderful work they did. We were very, very involved in its conception and its adult, if you like, presentation. I am amazed at how good it is, actually. I now am able to look at it and say, this is a decent album. This is a nice album. I love this album. At the time, I was a lot more critical about it. It doesn't mean I couldn't be now, but all in all, I appreciate what we managed to present under less than always perfect circumstances, you know, but that's life, you know, and that's what I love about it. It came out pretty regardless. <laughs> The real story of Princess begins across the pond in London, England. Born Desiree Heslop, she was brought up in a musical household led by her father, James Lloyd, who became a star in Germany after the success of his 1970 single, Keep On Smiling. Other family members and their extensive record collections helped nurture her love for sounds. had the privilege of uh, a sort of proxy uncle who had the most incredible musical collection. So that was when I was coming up to around sort of seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, that was definitely a main influence because I would listen to things like Pharaoh Saunders. I was listening to some very out there music for an eight, nine, 10 year old at the time. So there's that influence. There's also the fact that my father is an artist in his own right. He's a singer, songwriter, he's a musician. He produces music. He was one of the number one artists in Germany at a certain point. That's an organic bloodline vibe in terms of music and the arts. That's my father right there and my mother also had a really pretty voice used to consider that if she did sing she'd be a nightclub singer <laughs> so she could very pretty lady so she she would have suited that perspective very well and, and had a pretty voice as well 
I think when I got a sense of it being a special talent of my own was when Michael Jackson came on the scene and with the Jackson 5 and I was at school and I was able to replicate I want you back and stop the love you save I was able to do that and my friends of course that made me extremely celebrated in the playground that was when I realized that I actually truly did have a talent for this because I loved it so much that I would just start singing it. And then my friends would just be like, oh, that's it, that's how it sounds. Oh, oh, do it again, do it again. And then, so I thought, oh. So that's when I, I felt that, oh yeah, I probably can do this. Dude, I heard her sing Say a Little Pride for You by Rita Franken, and I lost my tiny mind. This is her manager and brother, Don Heslop. I thought it was a Rita in, 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 in the kitchen, and I just was like, you've got to sing. And she was very resistant. She wasn't that keen on how intense I was about it, but I maintained the intensity so much so that, of course, it became something that she looked as something she would do outside of um, going to college for law, because that's what she was doing at the time, at a certain point when she came up in life. So I just kind of interjected and said, look, you know, this is a talent given to you by the Almighty, and the talents are never wasted because they're taken away and must be improved upon and expanded because that's what the creator um, requires of you. So that's my story of hearing it. I became a dedicated fan and someone who was willing to do whatever was necessary to ensure that she had an opportunity to sing because in the UK, it wasn't that easy to get that opportunity. He crystallized it. He made sure that I gave it form and function. I loved music, period. So you know, little sax bits, little drum solos, anything that kept, that caught my ear, I would be totally enraptured about it. I'm a music baby in that sense. The vocals, I'll go into the vocals, the texture, the point at which the person emoted and made that emotion sonically available to us. I find that absolutely fascinating, even though I supposedly do it. No, I do do it. Let me not say supposedly I do it, but it's still a fascinating science in itself because you have to marry the moment with the intent, with the melody, with the rhythm, with everything at once. You must do that to get the best of what you choose to present and, and express. And I find that oh, it's fascinating. It's still fascinating to me. As she reminisces on her introduction to music, Princess notes how she got her talent not only from a hereditary point of view, but also from a spiritual one. When you sing in the final analysis, you must be carrying that which has inspired you within the song, within the tone, within the note. That's what you strive to do. That's what people respond to consciously or unconsciously. It's that vibration, that sincerity, that authenticity that you bring to the note, to the expression of said note, rhythm, what have you. That's what people respond to, I feel. I won't stand up as if I'm the be all and end all authority on it, but that's what I feel. 
Her fans from the Say I'm Your Number One days wouldn't be able to recognize Princess's recording debut on a punk style single with the unlikeliest of names. Yeah, it was a, a session that I, I can't even remember how I got roped into it, but I did. And the, cor- the chorus was If Pigs Could Fly and had this wonderful, oh, oh, <laughs> other bit that came afterwards. It was absolutely surreal, great fun. And uh, I got paid. Let that sink in. <laughs> I got paid doing something that I absolutely loved. And uh, yeah, so that's one of the debuts I could say. She also sang lead on a cover of a 1984 high energy track by Lorraine McCain, credited to the 501s featuring Desiree, called Let the Night Take the Blame. As she made her way into the music industry, she studied at the Royal Society of Arts in the design department and worked as an assistant for a large fashion retailer in London. All the while, she was in the recording studio as a session vocalist for a string of different artists, an experience that made her realize the power that lies within her voice. A lot of the people weren't quite names yet or even didn't become names, but would even use their hard-earned money for sessions to bring forward their music. And I was one of those singers at that point. For instance, there's a rock musician, I'm trying to remember his name. Is it Peter Green? I think it was Peter Green. And I did sessions for him, for instance, which was an amazing experience because he was a world unto himself, let alone doing the music with him. He was an experience in his own right. I like the variety because you go to the other end of the spectrum when I was working with Osibisa, for instance. So you go from a rock musician to an African band, African iconic band. In between, I did some certain uh, reggae sessions, I can remember, I think, with Winston Reedy. Um, I also worked with Precious Wilson, for instance, did work with her. Was at the beginning of the Mai Tai situation. All of that, it was it was just all in this wonderful melange of finding your way through this maze that is music, or the music business, I should say. I did it in that wonderful zone of just enjoying the experience of being paid, doing what I loved. I think it's made me appreciate even more the blessing of being able to present music from myself, even without a so-called instrument outside of myself. They gave me the one where you are the instrument and the instrument is you. And that's an amazing experience to be blessed with. I think it's a heady experience because you recognize that the sound comes through you and however you're feeling and who you are at that time cannot be hidden, not if you're being authentic. So it's made me appreciate the opportunity to know who I am at this point too and have people share who loves me 
at the point that I was just starting, share who's turning up now. It's kind of risky, actually. I think I'm very brave. (laughs) She admits she wasn't able to do as much session work as she would have wanted. And that is because, before she knew it, her role as a session singer led Princess directly to the doorsteps of the so-called Hit Factory. Part two will take a deeper dive into the making of Say I'm Your Number One, with more commentary from Princess, as well as from PWL Records engineer Phil Harding, who mixed the track and was involved in many other landmark singles from Stock, Aiken, and Waterman. This really was, you know, pretty much four or five days solid of concentrating on this one track and really getting it nailed from, from every point of view. My feeling was that something special had been created and we're really excited to play it to Pete. You know, we felt we had created a new Stock Aiken Waterman PWL sound that was, that, in, let's face it, it was a million miles away from Dead or Alive. We'll also discover some of the challenges Princess had to go through after concluding her work with Saw. I will think the best of you for as long as I can. I'll see you do something that looks a bit whack and still say, oh, well, maybe it's a bit off today and give you another chance. And then there's a point at which I feel that, no, you're not, you're actually doing this willfully. You're, you, this, I can't excuse you anymore. Then I'm not the person you should deal with. You need to leave. We need not to be doing anything together. That wraps up the first part of our Season 2 premiere. Many thanks to Princess and Donovan Heslop for their contributions to this episode. And thank you for tuning in. This episode was produced and hosted by Yostruli, Diego Martinez. Our executive producer is Nicholas Nick Fresh Buzo, and our audio engineer is Adam Fogel. Follow Tunes all over social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at TunesPod. That is C-H-O-O-N-S-P-O-D. And become a part of our community on Patreon, where you can find early access to our content, after-show discussions, and much more, starting at $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash TunesPod. Don't forget to rate us and give us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you get your podcast.